Well, good morning, everyone. Um, as uh, some of you knew, we were going to be doing something different this week. This is week 10 of a series called Follow Me, a series on discipleship. Great big word on the back wall there. And what we decided from the beginning was that this final week, we didn't want this just simply be a, a garden variety sermon. You know what I mean by that, guys. Um, we wanted to be a little bit different. We wanted to be questions <coughs> and answers. So we told all of our life groups during the last nine weeks, if you have any questions pertaining to the subject of discipleship, send them to us. So we took all the questions, and this last week, the three of us met, and we had to filter some of the questions out because there were just too many. So thank you to the groups for sending us those questions. Um, the ones we didn't answer or aren't, aren't going to answer today, we've sent answers to those groups. But for today, we're going to look at the answers to these questions, and I just want to thank the groups and I want to thank these two men here. I'm Peter Boyer, one of the elders. These are our pastors, Greg and James. Uh, I'm just the one asking the questions. They get to do all the hard work. So <laughs> let's go to God. Heavenly Father, I just uh, I thank you that you are the way maker. Lord, a couple of thousand years ago, your followers came to be known as the followers of the way. You showed the way, and Father, they followed very well. They did their job. They made disciples who went on to make more disciples. That's why we are here today. So thank you for what they did, and I just thank you for the teachings over the last couple of months here. And Father, I just pray that you would bless both of these men as they, uh, they address these questions, and I just pray that someone here uh, would, would go home with something different to think about, perhaps something to do, perhaps a big decision to make for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> so uh, let, me just, let me just launch right into this. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to ask uh, James here the first question. This was from the first sermon he preached uh, in the series. What is the distinction between disciples and apostles? Are these two terms interchangeable? Um, so short answer is no, uh, they're not interchangeable. Uh, although our, our Bibles, the headings that you might see in there, it refers to like Jesus' 12 disciples, probably should more say Jesus' 12 apostles. Um, every apostle is a disciple, not every disciple is an apostle. And I would say there uh, were very few apostles um, so let's start with disciple. Disciple, pretty much like simplest term, means somebody who is a student of a teacher. You accept the life, the teachings, the, um, the practices of that teacher. And so we would say Christians are Jesus' disciples. We kind of use those terms interchangeably here. Um, we accept the life, the teachings of Jesus. We put them into practice. And, and throughout this series, we've used this definition of disciple, someone who is following Christ, is being changed by Christ, and is committed to the mission of Christ. And so that's what a disciple is, just general sense, it's, it's every Christian. An apostle, if we're talking about like, let's say capital A, apostle, as you find like the 12 apostles of Jesus, these are people whom uh, Christ specifically called, commissioned uh, to follow him, he sent them out. In Acts chapter uh, 1, verse 21, 22 um, Peter and, and the guys, they get up, we're like, Judas is gone. Um, he betrayed Jesus. He, he killed himself. We need to replace him. And they say, the apostle needs to be somebody who witnessed the life, the teachings of Christ, and him after he has resurrected. And so th there were those qualifications for an apostle there. Also, you will find that uh, in Scripture, apostles are those who, who Jesus called specifically to help start the church to uh, proclaim the gospel and also to establish sound doctrine. So a lot of the apostles' writings or influence are found in the New Testament. 
And so the capital A apostles are the guys like Peter, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, Judas, we could keep going. But then you find um, Paul, who is also known as Saul, is, is an apostle as well. But if you read in Scripture, you also find little A apostles, we could say, kind of James, the brother of Jesus, and, and Barnabas. And so kind of really short answer, what I would say is there are plenty of disciples today. I don't really think there are apostles today. I know this might be something people would disagree with me on, but my reasoning is, is that based off the kind of the qualifications the apostles themselves laid out in Acts chapter 1, they would say you have to have witnessed Christ teaching his resurrection. I don't think any of us are old enough to say we, we did that here, are we? Um, also, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, he, he says, or there it says that the, the apostles, the prophets, are the foundation of the church with Christ himself as the cornerstone. You go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, and then it goes on and it talks about some other offices or positions within the church. And so you have evangelists, you have pastors, you have teachers. And I would say, now you, those, are, those are the positions that are within the church to lead and guide it. And so, that's, I know that's a long answer, but they are not the same. There is a difference. Um, every Christian is a disciple. Excellent. Thank you. We're off and running here. I, I, there's actually a follow-up question, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay with you. Um, the Gospels indicate that the first disciples just dropped everything and immediately followed Jesus. Did God soften their hearts before Jesus called them? I think this question, because uh, I remember when it came in, and that came in uh, after the very first se- uh, sermon in this series, and we're, we were preaching out of Matthew 4, we looked at Matthew 4 there, and if you read that through, it seems like uh, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, he's led out by the Holy Spirit in the wilderness to uh, be tested by Satan, uh, then he, he kind of comes to the area, he starts teaching, and you find like very soon He's calling these guys, Peter and Andrew, James and John, come follow me. And we see how quickly that happens, or it seems quick. And we go, man, that seems kind of like reckless of these guys. They kind of ditch their careers, and they just follow Jesus. They hardly know this guy. He's almost a stranger. That's what it seems like when you read uh, through Matthew 4. But if you were to read what is called a harmony of the Gospels, or another way of saying is this, if we took Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, pulled them apart, put them back together in chronological order, what you would find is there was actually a pretty big gap of time there between when Jesus starts his ministry and when he calls um, Peter and Andrew, James, and John. It was John's gospel covers a ton of time, almost a year's period um, in between him starting his ministry and calling the disciples. And so when he shows up to Peter and Andrew, they're in their boat um, or preparing to, to fish, and Jesus like, come follow me, and they, they just kind of ditch everything this isn't a stranger. They, they've seen Jesus. They've heard his teaching. They see the way he lived. And so they, they understand who he is. And so the question was, was God preparing their hearts in advance? I would say yes, but it was through ordinary means. They, they saw Jesus. They maybe interacted with Jesus. They heard his teachings. And so when he says, come follow me, they see that there's something amazing about this guy, and it's easy for them to say yes to it. It's interesting how these words coming out of these guys are not exactly the same as in the first service. I love it. Uh, Greg, the next question is for you. We always hear you saying that we must make Jesus Lord of our lives. We are to not just accept him as our Savior, but also Lord. Can you explain the difference? 
was doing the same thing, giving him the easier questions. <laughs> well, you're the, you're, you're the lead pastor, so he did ask you to get the heart. That's why they pay you the big bucks. Right. <laughs> but people can actually believe that Jesus existed. They could even believe in his resurrection and understand that he is a savior, but not actually make him their own personal Lord and Savior. Because the word Lord means master, ruler, supreme one. And until someone actually allows Jesus to <coughs> take that place in their lives, to be Lord over their lives, then they can't refer to him as Lord. There's a, a passage of scripture in John 15, which was part of one of my messages in this series. And it talked about the fact that Jesus is the good shepherd. And if we are sheep that are connected to him properly, then we will know his voice and be able to follow him. So verse 12, this is my command. Love each other as I have loved you. The greatest love a person can show is to die for his friends. So that's the type of love that Jesus showed for us. He was willing to die for us, so he wants us to put him on the throne of our lives. He wants to be in control of our lives. Um, there was another question that I'm going to tag on to this one. I think I'm going to stay with you, Greg. <coughs> what role does God the Father play in our faith versus the role that Jesus plays? So if God the Father, that's who we ultimately want to be in relationship with. Like when we're created, well, when we're born, <coughs> Adam and Eve were created, okay, and uh, <laughs> in the world, that's another lecture. <laughs> so when we were born, we were, had a sin nature, but then there came a point in our lives when we actually sinned and we separated ourselves from God. And then we had to do something in order to get back into relationship with God because that relationship was messed up. So that's where Jesus comes in once again. Jesus was the the one who died for us. He was the one to bring us into relationship with God. John, again, chapter 14 this time. I just want to read verse 6 and following. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. The only way to the Father is through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father too. But now you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. That is all we need. And Jesus answered, I have been with you a long time now. Do you still not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So why do you say, show us the Father? So Jesus was the ultimate demonstration of God. He said, look, if you want to know what God the Father is like, just look at me. I am the exact representation of him. And then through that relationship with Jesus, we enter back into a proper relationship with God. We're restored to him. Thank you. Um, in the spirit of giving you the easier questions, um, <laughs> if God is loving, why does he send people to hell? <laughs> Thank you. Let <laughs> <laughs> um, give that one to you. Yeah, I like a challenge. 
Uh, this question, I mean, uh, first, I'd, if I could talk to the person whoever posted, if they want to raise their hands, whatever. I'd, I'm curious. Are they asking from a standpoint, like, I believe God is loving. Scripture says he's loving. I also believe that there's hell. And so I'm trying to reconcile two things that just don't seem to uh, work well, that, that a loving God could send people to hell. Or there's the other standpoint where somebody might be going, God can't be loving if he sends people to hell. Thus, everything your Bible tells you is a lie. I'm not sure where this is coming from, but I will try and hopefully give a satisfactory answer. Um, God is loving. Scripture makes that abundantly clear. But the thing is, just because God is loving, that does not mean God loves everything. There are things, in fact, that God absolutely hates. He detests. Things that are sinful, evil, bad, wrong. God, God hates these things because he is a loving God. Now, we couldn't say God is, is loving if he saw things like child abuse, murder, um, all these things going on and said, you know what, I'm, I'm not really bothered by it because those things affect his creation and affects those that God loves. And so being a loving God, he's bothered by it. He wants to do something about it. And so he, he does do something about it. That, that sin, evil, it can't be in his presence. It's going to be cast out. Um, it, it will be dealt with. Now, here's the thing. Hell is fair. Um, we have to understand because Romans chapter 3, verse 23, and then later on in 623, it, it says like, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's standard. And what you earn from that, what you deserve for that is death. This would be hell, separation from God and the good things that come with relationship with God. And so hell, hell is what we deserve. Um, God could, could allow us all to go to hell and he would still be perfectly loving, just, good, and right. Now you might go, That's, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. But here's the thing. We aren't God. We didn't create the system. We don't get to determine the rules. But thankfully, God is gracious. In, in John chapter 3, verse 16 and 18, a verse that's familiar to most people, for God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. Whoever does not believe stands condemned. And so hell is kind of the default. Now here's, here's what it comes down to. God does not really send people to hell. We choose it. And non-choice is a choice. If we choose to reject God's loving offer of forgiveness and say, I don't want you, God, and we don't want to be with him, the only place left for us to go is hell. And so in many ways, we choose it. But God has provided a way of escape from hell through what his son did. He, he satisfied the law. But if somebody says, no, I don't want, I don't want you, God, I don't want relationship with Christ, they've, they've chosen hell. And so one thing I always try and come back to, we can complain, like a lot of people go, only one way to heaven. That, that seems ridiculous. That doesn't seem right. No, we should actually go, praise God, there is a way to heaven. And maybe we can look at things differently and go, how can God still be loving and, and just and, and, and fair if he allows sinful people to be able to go to heaven? And so we, we, we give praise that God is gracious towards us through his son. Excellent, thank you. Um, this next question is my favorite in all of them. Um, and Greg, I'm going to ask you to, to handle this one. We have people in our lives who are barely Christian. 
meaning that they acknowledge who Jesus is and believe in him, but they aren't interested in having an actual relationship with him. How do we address that with these friends of ours? Okay, what does barely Christian mean? <coughs> the, uh, the, does it mean they were never Christians in, in the first place? The, I like statistics. You probably hear me quoting them sometimes. But there was a survey done recently of Canadians asking how many believe in God. And 65% of Canadians said yes. And then they had another category where they asked, is your faith important to you? 21% said yes. 28% said moderately. And you start to think, okay, that's 49% from 65. Is that 16% are those the barely Christian? Or, or are they almost there? We've been talking in this series about what it means to be a Christ follower. Because that's what the word Christian means in the first place. It means Christ one or Christ follower. So if we're a Christ follower, then we are reading his word. We're, we're praying. We're listening to his words. We're sharing our faith with others. Now, I came across a family back in the early days of our vacation Bible school programs. Back then, we only had about 20 kids, so I could go visit everyone afterwards. And the children were there, the father was there, and the grandmother. And we were talking about God and talking about faith, and both the father and the grandmother said that they didn't believe that Jesus died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, and a couple of other things about Christianity. But then this grandmother said, I'm a Christian. And I was a little shy in those days about jumping on people and correcting them. Unfortunately, her son spoke up right away, and he said, well, Mom, how can you call yourself a Christian if you're not following him? I haven't really answered your question yet, have I? <laughs> so... If there's someone that you feel is barely Christian, what you need to do is model Christ in, their, in your life. You can share scripture with them. You can tell your story because there's nothing more powerful than your story. When you talk about how Christ has transformed you, then that will then allow the Holy Spirit to work in their lives and just back off. Let the Holy Spirit work and convict them of the decisions they need to make in their lives. Good recovery. <laughs> um, the next one is a, it's a pretty simple question. I'm going to ask you, Greg. In this series, we saw godly virtues in 2 Peter chapter 1. Faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Where can we find other lists of godly virtues, I'm assuming, in the scriptures? So Galatians chapter 5 is one that you're probably familiar with. You you might even have it memorized. But it, so it's verse 22 is where I'm beginning in Galatians 5. But the Spirit produces the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There is no law that says these things are wrong. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their old sinful selves. They have given up their old selfish feelings and the evil things they wanted to do. They got their new life from the Spirit, so we should follow the Spirit. So th that just talks about the beautiful relationship that we have with God, 
And notice that it says fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't say these are evidence of fruits of the Spirit, but all of these are to be evident in the life of the Christian. They are to be the Christian virtues that we display. And then there's a scripture in Colossians chapter 3 that I read at weddings, and you twist it a little bit to make it fit with marital love, but it's really to do with godly love. But beginning with verse 12, God has chosen you and made you his holy people. He loves you, so always do these things. Show mercy to others. This is where the list begins. Be kind, humble, gentle, and patient. Get along with each other and forgive each other. If someone does wrong to you, forgive that person because the Lord forgave you. Do all these things, but most important, love each other. Love is what holds you all together in perfect unity. Let the peace that Christ gives control your thinking because you were all called together in one body to have peace. And then if you say, go a little further, Greg, then we get to verse 18. Wives, yield to the authority of your husbands because this is the right thing to do in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be gentle with them. And then children, obey your parents in all things because this pleases the Lord. And then fathers, we'll just skip this verse. Do not nag your children. If you are too hard to please, they may want to stop crying. Like There are just so many scriptures that talk about the virtues that we're to add as Christians, but <coughs> read them and do them. Thank you. So I want to I pick one of those virtues at the, in, from the previous list, um, goodness. James, can you define from a Christian perspective, what is goodness? Um, so the question we could we could rephrase it this way who gets to define what is good or what goodness is now there would be um in in a kind of in our culture and kind of increasingly in the world we say well uh, the, the the majority can determine what is is good like let's leave it to humanity to determine what is good what is right what's pure and i mean that that can work for a bit but the the problem that happens is when my idea of good um, opposes your idea of good, whose idea of good is actually really good or truly good. Subjective good does not actually work out that well. And, and kind of look at it this way, like in World War II, you have the Nazis on one side, you have the Allies on the other. Both think their cause is good, but only one was actually good if we, if we kind of trace it back. Um, even if you were to say, well, we can establish it as human in the majority, it actually traces back to, to something. And so if we do not have a, a standard outside of ourselves, that's where problems will begin to ensue. Um, I think as we've kind of removed a standard from, from culture, that's where we're seeing a lot of the problems in our culture. Now, we, I could say, well, the standard for goodness, uh, it's, it's Scripture. It's just the Bible. Look at the, look at the ten, ten Commandments, how you're supposed to live and all of that. I mean, that, that is partially true, but I don't think it's, it's, it's the real standard for goodness. In, in Mark chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says to somebody, why do you call me good? Only God is good. So Jesus is there saying God is the only one who is good. And so God himself is the standard for goodness. Everything God is, everything God does is what is best. And so if it conforms to God's character, if it's something that, that would please God, we could say that is 
what is good. And so God is the standard. Um, I just kind of want to touch on this a little bit, and it goes back to what Greg was talking about. Goodness is one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And we, we call it a fruit because um, it, when the Spirit is living inside of you, when it's, it's transforming you into the image of Christ, that's where fruit is, is, is born. It, it, you bear fruit. You don't take things like goodness and be like, ah, I'm going to, here's the fruit of goodness, and I'm going to staple that on. Look, I'm a good person by just kind of putting that fruit on ourselves. No, the fruit comes from the Spirit living inside of us, transforming us into the image of Christ. And so it is, it is God that produces the goodness within us. Thank you. Um, continuing kind of with definitions, uh, Greg, what is the difference between a trial, a test, and a temptation? Or, or are they the same thing? Have you ever gone to a drive-in theater and between movies they have that little scene that's counting down to the movie? Show starts in 10 minutes. Show starts in 9 minutes. This guy's counting us down here. You're wasting our time. to hurry up. <laughs> but it, but <laughs> so there is a difference between trials, tests, and temptations. <laughs> trials... We experience those just because we live in a world that has been broken because of sin. So things like uh, viruses will be in the air. There will be bumps on the road that we'll run into. Like, uh, going out after the first service today, someone told me that he ran into a deer just recently. And he thought this was God doing this to him. And I said, no, that's just a, a trial. That's a part of being in this world. Like, I, I had colorectal cancer. That, that was a trial. That was something that came because of some genetics from my parents. Then there is testing, and testing comes from God. And this is designed to strengthen us, to, to make us mature. And, and God allows this to come into our lives and knows that when we get through this, we will be more powerful as Christians as a result of that. And then... The final thing is temptations, and these come from Satan, and these are designed to break us. Like Satan wants to get us away from God, so he wants us to sin and separate ourselves from God, and when we do that, we're weak and then vulnerable, and we fall away from him. Like there's a biblical character called Naaman who actually shows all three of these uh, attributes. Like he developed... Uh, leprosy. I was looking for you guys to help me because we heard it in the first service. And so that was a trial. And then God spoke through a prophet to tell him, go wash yourself in the Jordan River seven times and you will be healed. So this was a testing to see whether he would go do that. But then Satan starts the temptation. Oh, Naaman, you're an officer in the army. Like you're above going and dipping yourself in this muddy Jordan River. So he dealt with all three of these at the same time. And we experience all of those in our lives as well. Um, one follow-up question to that, and you've got 60 seconds. Can we be tempted to do good things? This is a great question. Uh, actually, we can, because there are sometimes better things that we should be doing and we get kind of distracted by the good things. Just to think of the apostles that James talked about. Like they had a 
feeding program going on, trying to feed all the widows within <coughs> the church. And it was just overwhelming, and they weren't able to do it. So it was a good thing to try and organize that. But they decided, let's pick seven men that can organize this ministry so we can do better things, which was to preach and, and teach God's word. Last question. You guys have done very well this time. You actually have like two minutes this time, so <laughs> no time. Um, this is a powerful question. Why has God not answered Jesus' prayer for unity? And before you answer, um, do you agree with the premise of that question? It sounded like a harsh question to me. <coughs> do uh, you, uh, yeah, why didn't he answer Jesus' prayer for unity? I, I, you ask if it's a harsh question. I said first service, and I haven't changed my mind. Um, I think it's, it's a fatalistic question. I think it's a question that has... Uh, it doesn't seem like there's much uh, hope when they ask that question for unity. Now, um, in John chapter 17, verse 20 through 23, Jesus defines that where we're, he says, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that God gave him, and he says he's giving it to his disciples, that we may be one, the source of our unity. And keeping this short, we are unified by who we believe Christ to be and the spirit at, at um, living within us. And so that is kind of the source of our unity. Now, um, we, we can, like, I, we can, we need to be unified on the big essential things, the big things, but there's room to uh, discuss, debate, disagree on some secondary issues. And I, I know even within this church, we have differing opinions on stuff here because when I've said some stuff, some of you have let me know. You know what? I have a different opinion. Of. That, that's cool because if it's a secondary issue, we can disagree and be brothers and sisters in Christ. That unity can still be there as long as we don't sacrifice truth or holiness for unity. Um, now, the reason I say it sounds fatalistic is, as I said, it sounds like they're going, there's no hope for unity. All hope is lost. Why, why do we even bother? God's not listening to Jesus' prayer. I, I don't, I don't want to say that because it sounds like we're saying, you know what, there's no hope for unity moving forward. To try and keep this as short as possible, I think it's up to us as individuals and then as churches to decide how that prayer is going to be answered in our lives and in our church. When I have to make choices and make decisions, am I going to make a decision that honors God, that grows his kingdom, that is beneficial to others? Will my choice love God? Will my choice love others? If I can say yes to that, I think that's answering Jesus' prayer for unity, that we maintain this, this oneness, um, that, that we stay together. If I can answer yes to that, I, I think then we're kind of saying no to Jesus' request for unity there. And so Essentially, the prayer, it's, it's an ongoing answer, and we have to decide. Will my actions um, protect, maintain, and guard the unity of the church that Christ has given to us? Can I ask you to thank these godly men for these answers, please? I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up while I uh, just have some closing comments. Um, the whole issue of discipleship is very important to me. Um, this has been a focus here for, for three months, but we've been doing a lot more in the last uh, oh, five years. There was a really clarifying statement that was made in this church about a half a dozen years ago at an annual general meeting. Dr. Ian Dempsey is sitting right out here. Uh, he's a surgeon, 
and we were talking about discipleship and, and just saying how we were struggling to, to know how to make disciples and to get people to buy into this, this, this importance. And, and Ian said, you know, why don't you guys treat it like surgery? Okay, you give me more. He said, in, in surgery, we have this philosophy, see one, do one, teach one. Okay, meaning, he says, after all your education, your training, and you know, the book learning, when it's time to actually start doing surgery, you, you go in there, and the first time you go in, you're watching. You're, you're seeing somebody do it. The next time you're, you're in there, you're doing it. And then after that, you're teaching. And, and I said, like, how would we ever build that mindset into people? And he said, well, maybe it's because when they, they join up to be a surgeon, this is an expectation that they come in knowing this is the way it is. And I said, I pushed back a little bit, and I said, hang on a second. Like, seriously, that fast? See one, do one, teach one. The, the turnaround is that fast? I said, surgery is like a life and death thing. Ian said, isn't discipleship? <laughs>